Welcome to Working Class Heroes Radio, a radio show by working people for working people in New York City. My name is Leah and I'll be one of your hosts tonight. We were gone these past two weeks and are happy to be back on air. And I'm Carlos, your other host. We're excited to share an interview we recorded some time ago. Today, we'll be speaking with Madel Hidalgo and Cleaver Cruz about anti-blackness and anti-queerness in the Dominican community. This interview was prompted by an event that occurred in Inwood a few weeks ago in the early days of the Black Lives Matter uprising. But before we get into the interview, let's check out this week's headlines. On Wednesday of this week, nationwide, more than 1,400 coronavirus-related deaths were reported, the worst day for COVID-19 deaths in over two months. Although new infections appear to have peaked nationwide, hospitalizations continue to rise. In New York City, on Thursday of this week, according to New York City data, four new infections and zero deaths were reported. In response to these numbers, New York City has entered phase four of its reopening plan, which eases restrictions on certain cultural and outdoor venues. However, one big question is the reopening of schools. After initially releasing a plan to partially reopen schools in September, de Blasio has now postponed this decision until right before their normal opening in September. This week, both the American Federation of Teachers and the United Federation of Teachers have come out in support of strike actions in order to guarantee the postponement of any school reopening plan without sufficient safety measures in place. As part of the National Day of Resistance against unsafe school openings, a caucus in the UFT, the Movement of Rank and File Educators, are organizing a march on August 3rd. Something getting less attention in New York City is the reopening of the courts, in particular housing and criminal courts. The federal moratorium on evictions ended last Friday, while in New York, a limited moratorium continues until August 20th, after which the Tenant Safe Harbor Act will provide eviction defenses for those with demonstrated financial hardships till the end of the pandemic. Accumulated rent will still, however, be due at a later date, causing fears for a future wave of thousands of evictions across the city, as approximately 46% of New Yorkers are unable to pay rent. However, courts have been hearing some cases virtually. Housing and criminal courts across the city have begun opening for in-person hearings, even while indoor dining remains closed. Advocates across the city have rallied against these reopenings, raising safety and accessibility concerns, including protests outside of courthouses and separate lawsuits by the Court Officers Union and a coalition of public defender organizations against the Office of Court Administration. Working Class Heroes correspondent Julian spoke with Jared Trujillo, president of the Association of Legal Aid Attorneys Union, at an action outside of Brooklyn Criminal Court on July 20th. We asked him why the city's largest union of public defenders was participating in the action. This is what he said. Why are you here? Uh, we're here in solidarity with low-income New Yorkers. We're here in solidarity with the national strike for black lives um, to really just bring some humanity into the system, to really just recognize uh, that when we say black lives matter, like we have to actually mean it. And as a city, we don't mean that Black Lives Matter when we decide to keep the housing, to, to start peddling people uh, through housing court um, 
to start these eviction trials for no reason. We don't really care about black lives when the criminal courts aren't hearing critical matters. They're not hearing matters of people that have been caged at Rikers, who've had their rights deprived from them, um, and we're just peddling them through court just because the mayor blamed them, blamed the courts, quote unquote, not working for an uptick in crime. Like we're here uh, to really push back, to show our communities uh, that we stand with them and we stand against the OCA's reckless decision to reopen courts prematurely without a real meaningful conversation with the unions. We plan to continue covering this issue in the coming weeks on Working Class Heroes. If you have been affected by this issue or are working on this issue, we would love to speak with you. As Leah mentioned earlier, the four-month federal moratorium on evictions included in the CARES Act ended on July 25th. Eviction notices are now legally allowed to proceed and evictions can start on August 24th. The Colorado-based COVID-19 Eviction Defense Project estimates that 20% of the 110 million Americans living in rental households across the country are at risk for eviction as early as September 30th. Non-white renters are expected to be especially at risk. Meanwhile, just yesterday, we saw the expiration of another major emergency federal relief program in the CARES Act. On July 31st, the $600 supplemental weekly unemployment payment expired. If a renewal of relief doesn't come soon, it could have a devastating impact for tens of millions of people, especially when combined with the end of the eviction moratorium. Over 30 million Americans have been receiving unemployment benefits. In New York and Los Angeles, the unemployment rate is near or above 20%. And many analysts expect the unemployment situation to get even worse as a number of states go back into lockdown as their COVID infection rates have gone back up. On Thursday, the Commerce Department reported that gross domestic product fell by an incredible 9.5% in just the second quarter of this year, the same as an annual rate of decline of almost 33%, by far the largest drop in American history. Even with this bleak news on the economy, Congress still has not come to an agreement on coronavirus relief, including the extension of unemployment benefits. Republicans have proposed cutting the relief to an extra $200 per week, while Democrats want to extend it at $600. On Wednesday, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows declared that the two sides were, quote, nowhere close to a deal. On a more positive note, on Tuesday, drivers for the rideshare companies Uber and Lyft in New York won an important legal victory that they are entitled to prompt payment of unemployment benefits. The ruling came after a lawsuit from the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, claiming that New York State was taking far too long to process the claims of drivers than other laid off workers. Judge LaShawn D.R.C. Hall ruled that the State Department of Labor, quote, has allowed itself to be led by the leash, unquote, by Uber and Lyft which have long argued that its drivers are not employees but independent contractors who aren't subject to labor laws such as minimum wage, overtime, and unemployment insurance. To learn more about the conditions facing New York's rideshare drivers, visit our website at wchradio.org and check out Season 1, Taxi Wars. Meanwhile, immigrant workers who have been excluded from unemployment benefits have been stepping up their efforts to demand relief. In a protest organized by groups including Make the Road and New York Communities for Change, hundreds of protesters camped out overnight outside the penthouse apartment of Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos to demand that New York State pass a billionaire's tax to fund relief for immigrants shut out of government relief programs. Less than a week after the protest, Bezos saw his own net worth 
increased by $13 billion in one day. As COVID-19 sweeps through jails, prisons, and detention centers, advocates of the Abolish ICE New York and New Jersey Coalition held a virtual press conference this past Monday, demanding Governors Cuomo and Murphy of New York and New Jersey sign an executive order that would prohibit interactions between state agencies, detention centers, and immigration authorities. The executive order supports national calls to free everyone for immigration detention. The coalition plans to continue to place pressure on both governors through organizing future actions and weekly phone banks targeting key stakeholders. Earlier this month, the New York State Legislature passed the Protect Our Courts Act, which makes it unlawful for any law enforcement officer, including immigration and customs enforcement, to make an arrest in or near state courthouses. In other immigration news, last month, the Supreme Court ruled that the federal government's dismantling of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, was unlawful, and that it must continue to accept renewals and new applicants for the program. However, in opposition to this ruling, Trump released a memorandum this week stating that it will reject all new applications and further limit ongoing DACA recipients. We will continue to follow the story. In transportation news, the MTA has released a budget that includes substantial service cuts, a fare hike, and administrative changes. It reports that without additional federal funding, it is losing $200 million a week and faces a deficit of $16 billion through 2024. Finally, on Thursday, Oregon Governor Kate Brown announced that armed federal agents would be leaving Portland after reaching an agreement to have Oregon State Police patrol the city. In a tweet, Governor Brown wrote, after my discussions with VP Pence and others, the federal government has agreed to withdraw federal officers from Portland. They have acted as an occupying force and brought violence. But while many across the country are celebrating this announcement as a victory over this move by the federal government, whose Department of Homeland Security has been accused of driving around Portland in unmarked cars and snatching activists off the streets, a number of Black activists in Portland say that the issue of federal intervention has become a distraction from the central issues of local police violence and anti-Black racism. These activists point out that while Mayor Ted Wheeler received national coverage when he was part of a crowd that was tear-gassed by federal agents, Wheeler's own Portland Police Department has itself used tear gas numerous times over the previous two months of protest. Meanwhile, in New York City, protesters are saying that the NYPD used a similar tactic to one that has provoked outrage by the action of Homeland Security agents in Portland. On June 28th, an unmarked SUV pulled up along the side of a march. Plainclothes officers and the warrant squad snatched 18-year-old protester Nikki Stone, put her in the van, and drove away. In the face of widespread criticism, Governor Andrew Cuomo called the video clips of the incident incredibly disturbing, while New York City Mayor de Blasio defended this arrest, but said it was done at the wrong place and time. The incident happened on the same day that ProPublica released a database of records from the Civilian Complaint Review Board, which found that one in nine uniformed cops in New York City have been the subject of at least one substantial civilian complaint. The incident also comes a week after police violently broke up the protest encampment outside City Hall that activists have named Abolition Park. If you would like to listen to the interview that we conducted with encampment activists before it was broken up, you can subscribe for free to Working Class Heroes podcast and listen to episode 11, Inside the Occupation at City Hall Park. And that's it for headlines. 
After a musical break, stay tuned for our interview with Dominican activist Medel Hidalgo and Cleaver Cruz about anti-blackness and anti-queerness in that community. That was Tonin Nanvim by Bachata Haiti, which is a collaboration between Haitian and Dominican Bachata artists. Tonight, our interview jumps straight into issues of anti-Blackness in the Latinx community. So before that, we'd like to give some context to the issue and the events that occurred in New York City that prompted this episode. White supremacy is the main obstacle to greater equality in the US. The, the Black freedom struggle is historically the most militant so when anti-Black racism rears its ugly head in non-white or oppressed communities, it undermines the struggles of all oppressed people. The starkest example of this happened at the beginning of the Black Lives Matter uprising right here in New York City, specifically on Dykeman and Inwood. On June 2nd, a group of mostly Dominican men in Inwood decided to group up and patrol at Dykeman Street and Post Avenue to prevent quote-unquote looting that had been seen the night before in the Bronx. The local police precinct met the group, gave them their support, and instructed them to wear white armbands, allowing them to stay out past curfew. The group effectively acted as a racial mob as they chased off Black people in the vicinity while being targeted as not being part of the community. A video of this incident went viral on social media. It brought to the forefront enduring tensions and accusations concerning anti-Black racism in the Dominican community. Tensions which have their roots in the way Dominican identity was made from their experience of colonialism. The basis being its radical separation from Haiti as a black revolt against slavery. As a result, white supremacy is pervasive within the community, especially tragic since a substantial number of Dominican people have black ancestry. Despite this incident happening over a month ago, several debates about anti-Blackness in the Latinx community, the role of the NYPD, and the concerns of small businesses are still very much relevant. In response to this incident, there was a Solidarity with Black Lives Matter rally in March the next day, organized by people from the neighborhood. Despite being canceled by the rain, hundreds of folks showed up in solidarity and marched through Inwood. As a non-Black Latinx person, I can say that there is anti-Blackness within the Latinx community overall, and there are different ways this manifests depending on where folks are from. Since the Black Lives Matters uprising started, there have been much needed conversations confronting anti-Blackness, colorism, and the erasure of Black Latinx folks when discussing the Latinx community. A recent example of this is when a journalist from the LA Times wrote an article about the 2020 Emmy nominations entitled, ME 2020, 
Black nominees gain ground, Latino representation still abysmal, which many argue fail to recognize that Black nominees can also be Latino. And instead of challenging the systemic issue of white supremacy, this framing places oppressed communities against each other. The work of confronting anti-Blackness and colorism has been happening since long before and has been led predominantly by Black women and the queer community within the Latinx community. This is why I feel fortunate to have been able to speak with Mandel Hadlogdo, an Afro-Dominican artist and organizer from New York City, who has worked with numerous organizations throughout the years concerning various social issues from LGBTQ issues and housing reform and Cleaver Cruz, a writer, member of We Are All Dominican, and founder of the Black Joy Project, both of whom have been leading this work within their communities. Now let's get into our interview. Thank you both so much for joining me today. So before we get started, if you can just introduce yourself by saying your name and what you dedicate your time to. My name is Madal, uh, my pronouns are they and them, and I'm an organizer within the LGBT movement and I do housing rights here, um, organizing as well. Hey y'all, my name is Cleaver, and I am a writer from Uptown, the Bronx, slash the Heights, Uptown, and um, CBX, you know. And um, I'm also a member of We Are All Dominican, a collective that began in 2013 after a resolution was passed in the Dominican Republic that effectively denationalized almost 100,000 um, Dominicans of Haitian descent. So this collective, we're here to amplify the work of the Reconocido movement in DR um, and also to make connections with Dominicans in the diaspora outside of DR around these issues of addressing anti-Blackness, classism, et cetera, et cetera. The video of the incident at Dykeman came out early in the Black Lives Matter uprising when there was a lot of anger in the streets. What was your reaction when you first watched this video? Uh, I feel like the first, um, like I said, like 10 of my friends sent me that. Like everybody on my thing was like, this shit happened in Diamond. And I was always like, damn, like I felt so disappointed. You know, like I felt so disappointed and so defeated because yeah, like um, I feel like my job as like a Dominican that lives here is to like constantly question and fight like anti-blackness and things that go on in our community, right? Like we're all supposed to be checking each other. And to see that happen, it was like, fuck, like we're still, we're still, this is still happening in 2020, you know, like, and of course we, we learned that there's a lot more that happened to the story behind this, but like my initial reaction was like disappointment, like, and yeah, and I want like, you know, like, to gather my people, like what's going on? Like why, like, why is this still happening? Like, why are we not taking care of each other during this time? Because we all know that in the eyes of the police, we're not any different. You know, we still be impacted by police brutality the same way. And just because, like, there's this messed up narrative that that we're different, <laughs> like, it's just, like, first mind-blowing that we're still thinking like that. And, yeah, yeah, it just, it hurts. It hurts. Facts. And, yeah, I, would, I wouldn't say too different from what my dad said. And that, yeah, and it kind of a yawn. Like, this shit is tired. Why are we still doing this in, in 2020? And how, how... Why is it that so quickly shit turned inwards in a moment like that, as opposed to in the other direction? Or what Madel was saying, more in the sense of solidarity as opposed to opposition. What are some of the struggles that Dominicans face within the Inwood community or New York City in general? Yeah, the immigration status and the um, language barrier definitely always. But I was thinking even like, you know, um, the theme of this weekend in my family has been like this voting situation, you know? 
and there was even voter fraud that happened here in New York. Like, you know, like they didn't open the voting thing for like three hours or something, and they were supposed to be open at seven. So that's one of the things that I thought about, like the fact that um, being Dominican, there's like a big orgullo, right? Like a big proud, like, let's to like make sure you serve your country, uh, patriotism oof, all the way. But it definitely comes with the culture, right? Like we are very proud and want to be able to serve and do whatever we want, especially with this corrupt, uh, this corrupt as government that we've been having for the last 16 years, 16 years, you know? Um, and I felt like that was like something like people were talking about a lot this weekend and like they definitely was impacted and people are angry and they feel like kind of like all they could do was vote from here, right? They can't go back home and help. They, you know, like they, they feel, they feel um, hopeless um, in that sense. Um, and I feel like that's something that's a struggle here. And just, yeah, and I feel like, you know, the anti, and when you talk about anti-blackness and white supremacy, right, like, and when it comes to, like, that colorism exists, exists in Dominican culture so much, right, so they want to assimilate in a way that, um, that it has to do with, with colorism, anti-blackness, like, ascension, right, will help you, if you look more white, it'll help you, you know, my mom took, I went to speech classes because my mom wanted me not to have her accent, you know, like, it's, it, it was, it's an ongoing um, struggle to just be, you know, tr try to follow them uh, the dream, I guess, like try to be successful. But I feel like there's so many, there's so many holes and gaps and cracks along the way that people don't see that are literally um, like, like breaking us down instead of like helping us like ascend, you know? And I would add, because um, it feels necessary, especially with the two of us talking, is issues of homophobia and like, transphobia all these different things of a close friend of mine being Dominican and non-binary and having to watch them like really struggle with their family of the years it takes for them to even get around to like the language let alone the understanding I think that's a real thing that's happening here that there's a dissonant we can be in America in 2020 but like what was said already is there's a culture that's coming in as well and that that's not one that's necessary not unique but it's not necessarily loving and accepting of us, the, the LGBTQ folks inside of our communities. Um, and that, of course, that's also tied to all these other things we already said, because there's ironies where like in the in the like LGBTQ camp, there's anti-Haitianism, anti-Blackness. And then the people fighting for rights of Haitians and Dominican Haitian descent, they're not with the shits, with the, with the LGBTQ people. So, which is not unique. That happens in this country and everywhere else in the world, but it, it's there. That's one of the things that we're working through um, because like what was also already said, if the goal is always assimilation and ascension in that way, then we obviously the goal is not freedom, not really. And that we can't get to those things because we don't want to, because that's in the way. Word, I, yeah. And the, like the, I like that you brought up the, the homophobia and the transphobia, because I feel like I'm, for me, um, I'm actually, uh, my mom has two queer children. <laughs> it's me and my sister, my older sister. And I grew up in DR. I moved here when I was 15. My mom moved me here because I was queer, which is like, you know, we call that a joke. We're like, you, <laughs> you messed up. But, um, but I think that that was really important because um, it actually drove my mom to, to seek mental health, um, like, a way. Like, she didn't know how to do with it, you know, because of all the Dominican um, ideas of what you're your kid is supposed to be blah 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 you know all that she had to that she had to let that go she had to let that go when her last child came out and then she had to do all this internal work but 
you know, like, it was years where, like, my mom did not defend me when it came to her friends, you know? Um, there was years where people, like, even there, today, in, in, like, um, in my building in VR, like, some people don't know I'm my mom's kid and act weird with me. But as soon as I'm with her, I'm cool with that. You know, like, and it's like, clearly this is because of homophobia. It's not because of, I still look the same. I still dress the same. <laughs> you know, like, um, so just, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because it's like, uh, there's a lot of unpacking to do when it comes with that, for sure. The video in the Dykeman incident shows pretty much nothing but men. How does gender and anti-blackness work together to create this type of dynamic? A patriarchy. Remember, we're talking about simulation, right? The closer you are to, right? Um, it's the same thing when it comes to like this dynamic of anti-blackness, right? Like you're reinforcing what what the white man wants you to be, what you want to do. So, like, if you are queer, if you are black, if you are different, if you are like, if you don't fall, if you fall against these lines of like that white supremacy does not support, then therefore you're you're inflicted by violence. You know. So I feel like that made sense when it came to like what's going, what happened with the incident. And just like, just in general, right? Like the Dominican culture has a lot of machismo and like checking people and, and usually machismo comes with violence, right? Like that's how you check people. You don't check people with like words or, you know, like what we know is just uh, to, to hurt people that are different, you know? Like, um, and I feel like, yeah, when it comes to, and I always talk that my queerness and my blackness are mixed, you know, like they, they're not separated. They are, they're, they're, they are, they coexist together, right? So if I'm black and I'm queer, then therefore like I am a double threat um, to, or and I'm a double threat to white supremacy. So I feel like that that came into play, right? Because look who <laughs> I'm like if you look at the video, look who was running after, you know, look who was like saying these words, and also like even like and I always thought about that, right? Like most of the people that were in the video indictment were dripped in black culture, you know, dripped <laughs> completely. I did not see one person that, that that was not, not one, not one that wasn't wearing, that did not have braids or did not have Jordan. What are we really doing to protect each other for real though, when there's no cops, when there isn't a moment of looting? How, and that, that does exist. I don't want to talk like that doesn't exist, but I'm just saying like on a bigger scale, how can that exist then? So then how are those dudes really showing up? Like when the trans woman is getting harassed or a non-binary person on the street or whatever, how are we, how is how are those people getting held down then? They're in the community. They're there right. every day. I always say that. I always say that. I'm like, if you're gonna be an asshole, like why don't you run up on people that do something wrong in our community? Because I always said that. I'm like, I grew up with that, right? Like if you if your man did something fucked up, we you you were supposed to check him, right? Like that was that's that's the hood culture, right? So why don't you do it when it comes to like important things like homophobia and transphobia and, and catcalling and, and, and sexual harassment? Like why is those are not the, um, the, the, the when we use that, 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 that machismo for, right? Like why don't we use that, that shit for something good instead of like continuously letting people slide, letting people slide, right? Like just because it's not affecting you at the time, you're going to let it just um, go. Because the truth is, we're going to be there no matter what. You know what I'm saying? Like, we got to fight no matter what. And that when there's an option, that speaks to privilege and the power of things, right? That as, a, as like, the biggest beneficiary of patriarchy and shit, you don't actually have to fight for us. That becomes an option. And I, I guess what I'm hearing us asking is why? Why does it have to be an option when we don't get the option? When we got to cry, we got to cry for Nina Pop and George Floyd. You know what I'm saying? 
versus everybody wanting to be on the George. And no shade, but I'm just saying, like, our shit is always optional. That's it. And we're the ones that are on the front lines and doing all that. Literally, who's in the conversation right now? Tenía siete años apenas. Apenas siete años. ¿Qué siete años? No llegaba cinco siquiera. De pronto unas voces en la calle me gritaron negra. Negra, 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 negra. That was a performance entitled Meglitaron Negra by Victoria Santa Cruz, who was an Afro-Peruvian choreographer, composer, and activist. If you like our show and want to support community radio, you can go to WBAI.org and become a BAI buddy on behalf of Working Class Heroes Radio. You are listening to Working Class Heroes Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM. We are speaking with Madel Hidalgo and Cleaver Cruz about confronting racism in Inwood. Let's get back to the interview. All these dynamics around like anti-Blackness, there was a certain history and context behind it. Could y'all speak to the origins of these dynamics? I know that's like a lot to cover, um, but you know, maybe things that would be helpful for our listeners to kind of get a better picture of like the history and the context. I think my understanding of some of the root of it is we have to accept that DR in history of the Western Hemisphere is actually the beginning of the slave trade in the Western Hemisphere. And that um, because of that, that becomes the beginning of like forming what potentially is the Black experience in this part of the world. Part of what happened was that there actually were free Blacks coming to the DR at the very beginning, but then of course slavery came in quickly behind it. Um, and that we're Dominicans that unlike in the US, which was much more chattel slavery and this distinction. There was more, there was more gray area because there wasn't as much of like the white man was up here and looking at the slaves working, but often they were working side by side. And that geographically in the DR, there's a distinction of like people living outside of Santo Domingo were resisting. The Cibao and all these other places are known for that. Of like they were able to create their own economies, work outside, figuring out ways to resist Santo Domingo as the seat of this colonial power. Um, and that then, of course, quickly after, then Haiti begins to get developed, right? And that by the time it becomes its own country, there's been enough centuries past to develop this narrative of what Haiti is in distinction to DR, of DR always being not Black as like the better, the thing in service of these colonial powers. 
And that, of course, like now today, one of the popular things I've heard from the trolls, the ultra nationalists, is this stupid ass argument about this period from 1822 to 1844, where Haiti was ruling over the whole island so that it was renamed Saint-Domingue. But that the, the, the story tries to be like, oh, this violent period, and we need to fight back forever and ever because they destroyed us for 22 years. But it's more of like, what happens when the first Black Republic gets developed in this part of the world? What has to happen next door? It has to be the story developed that they're not that. It, I mean, the laws changed in the US when Haiti became independent. That's how much of a ripple effect it had. And that Haitians also were adamant. You could look at the history. They didn't stop at Haiti. They tried to figure out where else can we get our people free. And that literally who was second after the first? Us, the people next door. And that it's in this, at least the way I understand it, it's in the service of the DR to constantly see Blackness as a Haitian thing so that it cannot be that. If it can be anything but that, then it, then it, because when you hear a lot of the nonsense, the argument is like our identity, we're not, we're not Haitians. It's all this like, we're not Haitians as if, I don't want to get too into it, but I'm just thinking about like history just keeps telling us these examples, right? That like in 1937, when there's a massacre, how many Dominicans got killed because they couldn't tell the difference between a Dominican and a Haitian? Literally, they're asking people to pronounce a word that even Dominicans growing up along that border would have picked up that accent because they had to learn how to speak Creole and Spanish, you know? So Better just think, Better heal, right? Mm -hmm. So just thinking about like um, all of those histories, and then you combine that with capitalism, you combine it with the U.S. occupation at the beginning of the 20th century and throughout it that everything is set up to work against the people. It's literally set up so you don't learn the truth. There is no, there is no popular African history in the DR. There's no popular black history in DR. That you have to really seek that out, you know? And that, that's fucked up. That you can, you're living in a country where is the beginning, like slavery was existing for over, over a century in the DR by the time it got popping in the US. Even though we always talk about slavery as beginning in the US, it really didn't. Like there's, almost 125 years of that shit existing on the island way before. And that that's trauma, right? Like such a deep thing has occurred that we can't even talk about it. That, like this thing with these practices were perfected there so much so that we can't even talk about it. That's how deep that pain is. In DR, you know, La Romana, right? It's like a certain place. First of all, just talk about gentrification for real. Like that, that town got like erased because of like tourism. But a lot of people are actually black there, but from the islands, usually are from like the Virgin Islands or something. They're actually called, the term called Cocolo. And it's usually for like black people that come from like another place, like an, an Americanized place or like a place like that, like the islands, like West Indies, in DR, the term Cocolo. But I also remember it being used in pop culture in a sense in DR when I was growing up. Like if you dress a certain way, you were like Cocolo, you know, um, or like preppy or like, you know, you know, there was different, there was different distinction. And I think like that also um, will come into the erasing of like um, the, act, the actual blackness behind it. It became more about like um, what you wore instead of like where you actually came from. And that, that and then the fact that that term is from black culture, um, the music, the dance, the, the, the beautiful skin complexion, you know, like all these things that they just continuously um, uh, try to erase. I remember that part, you know, like, uh, and, and that term being pretty popular. And those that's a big group of people in, in La Romana that live there. 
It's true. And it makes me think too of um, another function of this is not just history, but like in the moment that in DR, for example, it's like most other places, but it's really this small group of white people that are so powerful, right? Like the sugar industry, this is, this is Italian. What's it called the Vincini, the Vincinis, I think. These Italian families, these historically white European families that have a strong, like their streets named after them. They're paying for commercials on TV. There's all this stuff happening in our faces. And somehow that the function of all this allows us to critique each other as opposed to paying attention to like, this small group of motherfuckers are actually the ones influencing and running shit on this island, not even living here half the time, but literally sucking the land dry from sugar canes and all that. They're the ones driving the bates and all the work around that, but we don't see it that way. It's much easier to like take on, we don't like Haitians and these types of things, again, because of trauma and shit, as opposed to, hmm, it's interesting when we look at TV and all of the women on TV are light-skinned. Or when you watch anything that's supposed to be a popular representation of Dominicans, it don't look like the people on the island. It really don't. Um, that I'm just thinking about that too, that a function of white supremacy is to limit our imagination. It's to, it's to suppress the ability of understanding things more broadly and really like see, you know, because the history is there. It's not that it doesn't exist, it's actually there. It's what's prevented is our access to it. Um, and that, um, yeah, and like drawing the, the larger connections between all of these things, because then when you start traveling to other countries, you start realizing that shit is not unique. It's really not. And that Brazil's another country of, uh, with a really good example of this DR complex, where there's mad people that you walk around think that you think they're black and they're not even thinking that way. They're not identifying as black. And that's including dark-skinned people. Yeah, it's, it's, it's also making me think about um, the legacy of Trujillo, that we're in the wake of that, right? We're only, some of us, only like one generation, two, if, depending on how old you are. From like my grandma, I have to have grace, right? That like my grandma literally grew up in a society under the rule of somebody that was telling her every day as a dark-skinned person, you don't have value in the society. And that if you're associating with other people like that, you don't have value. And that today, to bring it to a contemporary, Fucking Ramfis Trujillo, his grandson, who's not eligible to run for president for the record, is out here with a whole office on 145th in, in the Heights, saying like, making it seem like this viable thing that he can run. But the point of saying that even is not even about him, is that what he's doing, much like the Trump um, administration, is this revival of Trujillismo, of this like, people literally saying we miss that sentiment, we miss this control in our country that when we had that level of control things were better you know um what does that what does that mean that in 2020 we're calling for the legacy of literally one of the most racist people ever in history self-hating not racist self-hating um people on in america in u.s in the world history that we're there's people out here that he's allowed to campaign I was gagging when I saw that. I, when I saw that, and he was marching down the heights, and I was, I realized I was actually on my way to work, and I saw it on my phone, and I'm like, y'all did not run him out of the heights. Y'all let him walk around, you know, with these, and people were, people were shouting for him, and I'm like, you should be ashamed of yourself, that you think that, that they saying the name Trujillo in any positive way should ever come out your mouth, like, the, the, the positive thing is that he died. You know, like, that should be your positive no Assassinated. Um, like, because that, when I saw that, I remember I was like, yo, we can't be out here. And this is not okay. 
yeah, I know he can't run, but still, like, it, it's just it's just mind blowing. But it's worrisome because of what we're talking about, right? That the the reality is just similar to Trump, similar to Bolsonaro in Brazil, similar to the leader in India, and so on, is that what happens culturally, right? Because then other people get hyped and gassed. That actually, like, they don't have to deal with Trujillo. They're dealing with the black people in their neighborhood. So then that becomes the violence, right? Of like, then they feel empowered on this everyday thing that people have been lynched in the last couple of years in DR. La historia que hoy les de mis ancestros negros africanos esclavizados trabajaron mucho la tierra del amo con los andinos se juntaron Something that's really important when we're talking about anti-blackness, specifically in the Dominican community, that it is also seen overall in the Latinx community, right? And how there's been arguments that have been made about how a slogan like Latinx for Black Lives is erasure. So what do you think of these debates or even the term Latinx in this moment of black uprising? Is there a specific role that the Dominican community could play in helping to bridge this gap in the Latinx community? I'm off it, the Latinx thing, to be honest. Like, I'm off it. I'm off Afro-Latinx, too. I just go by Black. That feels like the term that is most in solidarity with the world of Blackness, as opposed to it being couched in this term that was never set up anyways for people outside. Again, like, that Latinidad, at least the way I understand it, is it's opposing to this US race system because it's always in proximity to whiteness, that to blanquear is a much, that's the prevalence of things. Um, and so for me, I'm not interested in an identity that was never set up for us anyways. And that the truth is as a light-skinned person, you know, I, I can say whatever I gotta say, but literally everybody else in my family and other parts of Latin America, that's not a question. Like people have been growing up black in Latin America, whether they were termed whatever, the truth is that they understood their position inside of all of it. That that's, this is not a new thing. There's not, it's a trend to identify as Afro-Latinx or whatever, but the shit is old. Literally since 
I, I just talked about that. 14, if Columbus came in 1492, the year after there was black people. So there's been black people here and that we also have to get off that and that I'm not interested in getting another seat at a table that wasn't designed for any of this. Because even in the US, who was buying, who literally was in government creating this Hispanic category was a non-black Latina who was creating this movement inside of the government saying that her people needed to be seen and that actually invisibilized a lot of other people. So that when you hear shit like Latinx for black lives, that sounds cool and cute and all that, but that actually is, it's a once again being like, we're not that. And that some black people, some Afro-Latino, so to speak, get to, they use it as that, as like, I'm this type of black, not that type of black, which is nonsense. Word, I feel like I, yeah, same thing. I let go of uh, identifying with Latinx like a couple of years ago, especially because I feel that, right? Like, like I said, people do whatever it is not to claim their blackness, you know? And I'm not interested in that <laughs> either. I'm not, I'm not trying to like, uphold that, that narrative anymore <clears throat> i understand that there's throughout like you know like the latin american like the community whatever there's a shit ton of identities and people are confused of what they where they are and what stuff like that but um at least for me i feel like it doesn't it doesn't work it doesn't it doesn't make me feel good to be like just to be another other box you know like i am it doesn't it doesn't help <clears throat> i don't think it helps movement and yeah, and it continues to create anti-black narratives. And it makes me think about like also how the news, right? Like we, uh, like Onivision and stuff like that. Um, like how we Dominicans are like portrayed in a certain way and it's all, and like usually not in a good light, <laughs> you know? It has to do with some some crazy stuff that happened over there. And it all, and all has a very anti-black narrative when it comes to like how Dominicans are portrayed. And I, and and we're and that's Latinidad, right? We're in that's a that's a Latino on news station, right? It's supposed to be the the news station, um, the the two of them. It's true. It's making me think about. I was watching Primer Impacto a couple weeks ago with my grandma, and they were translating Black Lives Matter as Las Vidas Afroamericano Important. That was like, what? Wow, <laughs> that is really wow. But to me, it signaled what we're talking about, right? That it's another distinction of like, this shit doesn't exist in our community. Latin Latinos don't deal with that. That's not our problem. That's an American problem. These Black Americans are the ones that are upset and uprising. What does a positive vision of community efforts to protect from danger look like? The idea is to find simple, you know, like very common, very simple ground. And I'm like, yeah, it's about having the way to get there is like by having com like communication, like figuring it out, unpacking it, having the hard conversations, checking your friends, doing like all. I feel like that's the only way that I can tell you that something can change, you know. Um, and to to think about like what I would, you know, like the idea of what I would want it to be. I I unfortunately right where we are now, I feel like it's it's gonna take a couple of us, right? It's gonna take a couple of generations of us to fix this. It's not just gonna be like. Um, yeah, I don't think I'm gonna be able to do it, you know, like, I think, but I'm gonna help guide and understand and try to help heal the people around me, but I don't think that it's gonna be uh, an easy, you know, like, an easy way to, to get there. I'm just, I'm just gonna go with that, and I'll add that, um, uh, imagine, I just can't say enough, that we gotta be imagining what are the other ways, what are the other modes we can exist. And I really agree with what um, 
Madel just said about struggling with each other, because that's actually the area of growth. If we can struggle with each other through these, through these things, because the other thing is we got to unteach ourselves. It's hard to say, fuck capitalism, but we're not actually imagining or really figuring out in action what is the alternatives though. And they exist. We actually can have horizontal setups and all these things that are not always in service of the few at the top or the one at the top type thing. Um, but that that also comes with security and that we have to be able to hold it. That's community to me too, right? That there's accountability and that we can hold each other in that, that if you decide you, you want to leave your job or whatever, because it's not working for you in terms of how it's serving all of these greater powers, then what are we doing to support you inside of that? And that, that means practical shit. Like uh, some of us are going to be giving you money so you could get groceries until you find a job, the next thing or whatever. I always tell my friend, I'm like, you know, everyone, when we're talking about abolition, right? They fund the police, right? There's a big conversation going on. And everybody always be like thinking that abolition means like uh, burning everything down and like it, it, cre- it, it means chaos and all this stuff. And I'm like, no, for me, abolition means like the, like daring to dream different. Like literally just not doing what we're doing. <laughs> like just that we're just, I'm not, of course, there's probably some buildings that I do want to see go up, <laughs> but there's no, there's, but that's not what, that's not literally what we're talking about is the people always think that, um, that when you're asking for change and you know, like when, when we, the people that are oppressed go through shit, when we're asking for change, you think that we want violence. And it's like, oh no, we're not asking for violence. Jad was used to violence, you know? So, so that's what you think we're gonna be. Um, and of course you'll get the violence back, but really we're not talking about that. We're talking about change. We're talking about something different. We don't want this. Like, we're like, that's, I was like, how many different ways have, have we said it right throughout the years in different countries, different ways. We're like, we want something different. If you think it's violence, that, how we're going to get it, then yes. But like, it's not about, that's not what we're talking about. Thank you both so much for speaking with me tonight. Unfortunately, we're out of time. But again, um, I felt like I learned a lot and I'm pretty sure our listeners learned a lot as well. So thank you for that. And thank you for all of the organizing that you've been doing um, around the, around these issues. Unfortunately, we are out of time for tonight. Thank you all for listening. A big shout out to our engineer, Catherine. Working Class Heroes will air next Saturday, August 8th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time here on WBAI 99.5 FM. In the meantime, stay safe, New York, and as always, in solidarity.